There are two possible titles for tonight's talk. The first one is The Greatest Disappointment Leading to Peace. And the second one is Anicca and Letting Go. I read a book with little stories about Suzuki Roshi recently or a while ago, and just little one-page stories with great uh, little teachings, and so one story, there's a student, and he says to Suzuki Roshi that he's been listening to him for years, and um, he just, he's confused. He just doesn't get it. And would Suzuki Roshi um, give him one sentence explanation of what Buddhism is about? So Suzuki Roshi replied, here are the succinct secret teachings for you all. Everything changes. That was all he said. Everything changes. So all of our practice, the wisdom part of our practice, is about making peace with this truth. Everything changes. Or anicca, impermanence. This has very far, our anicca has far-reaching implications for how we understand happiness, how we live our lives, if it's carried through to its end, it really means that living living in harmony with this world means understanding that there's only peace and letting go and non-clinging. And the Buddha taught this as the heartwood of the practice, this truth that letting go is what brings the deepest peace or freedom. And this is the freedom of an unfettered or uncontracted heart-mind. Ultimately, we're talking about letting go of clinging, clinging to any experience. This is what Anicca teaches us. So it's said that there's three doorways to freedom in our practice. Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. And we've touched on all of these, surely. I know that uh, Annie gave a talk on dukkha, and we've talked a lot about anatta, or not-self. Tonight I'm going to round it out with talking about anicca, or impermanence. Anicca is really the most elemental of these three truths, or doorways to freedom, because the other two are natural corollaries of this one. So the fact that change is ceaseless, that we live in a world of constant change means that things are not going to be permanently satisfying, that they're unsatisfactory or suffering, dukkha. And this truth of change also means that what we take to be ourselves is this process of constant change and that we can't find a solid, independent core self because of this. Any one of the three leads to the other two. They're intricately intertwined, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And often we'll have one that we connect with more than the others. It's kind of our doorway to freedom. Or sometimes you'll find that at certain times in practice there'll be one that will really be noticeable and up for you. And then that might shift in other years of practice. And it's said that at the moment of enlightenment, one of these three truths is said to crystallize in the mind. That our understanding of it uh, is so profound that it pierces the veil of delusion, of not seeing how things are. So understanding these characteristics Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, uh, is the insight that leads to freedom or leads to the liberation of the heart and mind. The other day we had a question that I answered and, I, and there was a part of it that I didn't get into that I want to just mention tonight. And I think that there was a, a question implicit in another question about the difference between psychological insight and meditative insight. What exactly do we me- mean by insight? Uh, in this practice. 
psychological insight is a, you could say, a byproduct of, of practice. We sit here and we get certain understandings about how we as unique individuals work, our patterns of conditioning, our uh, the ways and stories and beliefs we get stuck in, um, ways we relate to others, and uh, this happens in practice. It can be good and supportive of our practice if it leads to the unbinding of the heart and mind. So if it leads also perhaps to us making a commitment to live with better ethics, with more um, integrity, or if it leads to us leading, living with more compassion, if it uh, clears the heart and mind of contraction. However, it's not so helpful if the psychological insights just serve to strengthen our sense of ourselves. Like, oh, so this is how I am. And um, if we become overly fascinated with this kind of insight, we can actually take away from, um, you could say, the greater benefit of, of the insights of what we call meditative insights, insights into anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So the meditative insights are much less personal. They're not about my personal story or who I am. The content doesn't matter much. Basically, they're the truths that all that arises passes away. And the truth that um, because of that, things of this world or experiences of heart, mind, body are not going to be ultimately satisfying and that they can't be claimed as me or mine. So meditative insight, uh, it's all variations on those three themes. So let's look at dukkha, or not dukkha, nietzsche. Well, we will be looking at dukkha too, can't avoid it. The first time I heard the teachings of Anicca, or impermanence, was in my eighth grade science class. And um, I still remember where I was standing. I was so hit so profoundly with this teaching. The teacher said, the only thing constant is change. Change is the only thing that doesn't change. And I remember thinking, wow, and thinking, that's true. It just, you know, years later, I can still remember that, that um, what he said. And what I didn't know at the time was that 2,500 years earlier, the Buddha had taught the same information as uh, a key point for us to understand if we wish to travel this path of liberation. And maybe he was a Buddhist or maybe he was just a scientist. Some of similar things are being understood in both paths. The Buddha himself, in a well-known phrase, described Anicca poetically by saying, Thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. All of those images have the sense of here and gone, such as thus shall you think of this fleeting world. It's kind of poignant. So we may think to ourselves, well, everybody knows that everything changes. What's so profound about that? I know that. If you ask the average person, do things change? They'll usually say yes. I tried this experiment once when I was writing my first Anicca talk. And people didn't have any trouble agreeing that things change. And then I asked them, everything? Does everything change? And this people weren't so sure about. One person said 95% of things change. <laughs> Another, other people didn't know what to make of me by asking that question. But we can miss out on the profundity of this teaching because it seems kind of obvious the depth and breadth of this truth of Nietzsche and its implications for how we live aren't usually contemplated. 
for one thing, the speed of change uh, looks different to the untrained worldling than to those who meditate. Harper's Index once asked people, I think Americans, what the, uh, how, many, how long does the present moment last? Or the present. They didn't say the present moment. They said the present. And the consensus was that the present lasted three seconds. That seems really long to me. <laughs> Maybe to you too, to, to you all of you too. <laughs> well, the Buddha was a bit more refined in his uh, present moments. He, he, um, he said that there's thousands, uh, thousands of mind moments in a second. So that's, that's a little different. There's a Japanese teacher named Jakusho Kwong, and he writes about it like this. Everything is changing. In one way, it's complete freedom. It is said that there are 6.5 billion instances in 24 hours. And in one second, there are 7,000 instances. As we are sitting here, they are continuously coming and going continuously coming and going, just like when I strike my stick on the floor. Bam, 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 bam. Isn't that wonderful? This is complete freedom. We see ourselves as firewood going to ash. We see ourselves 30 years old going to 60. My God, look out, here comes 70. We see ourselves only in the linear, the sequential, moving toward an end. We don't understand that within each 24-hour day there are 6.5 billion instances of life, death, life, death, gain, loss, gain, loss, dark, light, bodhisattvas, clouds, cars, you and me. All the dharmas are appearing and disappearing continuously out of the beginningless beginning and the endless end. This is really fantastic. It gives us such a very wide liberating view that to even call it Buddha Dharma or anything else diminishes it. Has a different feel than three seconds. So Anicca. The biggest challenge for us in this life is that things are always changing that we can't peg things down, make them be like we want them to be. Now, of course, we have influence. I don't want to uh, say that we're completely powerless or that I'm talking about passivity. But yes, we've taken birth in this tough universe. It's tough to navigate because there is this wild speed of change. It's a wild, wild ride, this human life. You may have noticed this in your meditation. Life or reality is intense because it includes such a wide variety of experiences constantly changing, sometimes described as the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows or sometimes described as the eight vicissitudes of life, pleasure and pain, loss and gain. I'm going to forget the rest of them. Uh, Something and blame, what is it? Praise and blame and fame and disrepute. The eight worldly conditions. They're always changing. We hope, we wish we could just have the praise or the gain or the pleasure, but it doesn't work that way. That isn't the kind of universe we've taken birth into. It's a wild ride. The Buddha said, Sabe Sankara Anicca, the entire universe is fluid. Everything in conditioned reality, this manifest world, is in a constant state of flux. Nothing in this world escapes this truth. And in meditation, we contact our own experience of heart and mind to see the truth of this reality, 
right within our own experience. Think about your last sitting. What happened? It was probably a pretty constant experience of change, process of change. The breath, a pain, a thought, an emotion, hearing, the breath, thinking. Or today, what happened to lunch? It's gone. Remember my first retreat here, every day I would look forward to lunch all morning, right? Thoughts, what's for lunch today? Sometimes I could even smell lunch from the meditation hall here and I'd know what we were having for lunch. I'd go in and I'd enjoy lunch and then somewhere in the middle of lunch, it's usually about two-thirds through, I would realize it's going to end. <laughs> As you may know, there's not a lot of entertainment around here, so I found that... Um, Quite disheartening, you know, and then lunch, finish, and I just sit there and be gone. It's gone. And I did that every day. Sometimes we're a little slow as uh, human beings. So, this is the kind of universe we've taken birth into. It's not a picnic. Personally, I think it's a kind of intense universe. Like, what are we going to do with all of this change? I just want to peg it down. Don't you? So we humans um, aren't always too excited to hear about this truth of impermanence. If we resist it, if we resist this truth of change, there can be a lot of fear. A lot of fear can arise. And then we even seem to think that things that there's something wrong if change happens. We seem to believe that we should be able to control change. The computer quits working. Our next sitting isn't as nice as our last sitting. We should be able to get back to that sitting, shouldn't we? There's some kind of unconscious belief that we should be able to do that. But it's not true. This is the kind of universe we live in. Things keep changing. Ajahn Chah, as you may have noticed, he's one of my favorites. He translates Anicca as uncertain. In his book, Food for the Heart, he says, People say Ajahn Chah only talks about not certain. They get fed up with hearing this and they run away from me. We went to listen to Ajahn Chah Cheech, and all he talked about was not certain. They can't bear to hear the same old thing anymore, so they leave. I guess they are going to look for some place where things will be certain. But they'll be back. (laughs) So our practice is a study of anicca. And when we meditate, we put a lot of emphasis on experiencing direct sensations. Because on the level that we usually look at life, the more superficial, conceptual level of life, um, things don't appear to change very much. Or there, there can be a fixed, uh, a fixed perception of life when we live on the conceptual level. So what we see on the conceptual level is more our ideas about how life is rather than what's really happening. So when we get close, as we do in meditation, we see this constant process of change. So we may have an idea of a headache, and it seems like a fairly... It doesn't have uh, that sense that it's always changing. You may think that we have a headache, and wow, it's lasting and lasting and lasting. But if we get close to this experience of headache, what do we see? We may see pulsing and throbbing and movement and intensification and uh, less intense. Constant change is what we see when we get close to life. So even if we're 
using an anchor a lot in practice, as I mentioned the other day, we, we relate to it by seeing change. So if we're with the breath, we, uh, we're with the actual experience of the sensations of breathing through the in-breath and the out-breath, and what we'll notice is change. And that's one of the reasons that for Vipassana meditation, counting breaths isn't um, considered Vipassana because the counting is more on the conceptual level. We want to get close to the actual experience. This is why concentration practices aren't Vipassana because they, they aim to fix attention or to fix reality. With Vipassana meditation, we want to see things as they are which means constantly changing. And so then we notice in our meditation this thing that we call ourself, right? The five aggregates, body, form, feeling, consciousness, volitional formations, perceptions. Um, what happens when we, when we check this out? Again, we see this process of constant change changing sensations, changing perceptions, changing feeling tone, rolling on and on. Where is the fixed, solid me? When the Buddha, in a number of discourses, when he was contemplating with his monks whether something could be called self or not, he would ask two questions. One was, does it change? And can you control it? Does it change? If it changes, how can you call it self? How can you make it into something fixed, independent, permanent? And can you control it? I don't know if we relate to this one. I think the change one we can relate to more. But over over the years, I relate more to this control one. There's a certain uncontrollability, right? Somebody mentioned it in interviews today. You know, this mind, we, we want to control it, but can we? If it, if, if, if it were me, wouldn't I be able to control it? So if you really want to understand not-self, just go for a Nietzsche. Notice impermanence. Notice how it all changes. Rolling on and on. So as I said, when we um, resist this truth of change, a lot of fear arises in our practice, in our lives, in our minds, hearts. But when we don't resist the truth of change, when we can relax into this constant flow of life, we see that we live in an amazing universe. We relax into don't know This world of change is fresh and vivid and amazing. It's really the only way to be alive because life is change. Not that there's change in this world, but that the very fabric of life is change. The very nature of this world is change. We couldn't have this universe without it. Lynn Jensen, another one of my favorite uh, Buddhist authors, describes it this way. Life is just a collective term for the movement the universe makes, which is to say that life is a manifestation of impermanence. Even solid rock in its apparent impenetrable fixity gradually disperses towards delight. If it did not, there'd be no soil, no flower, no pollinating insect, no grazing or browsing animals or bird or human. Whatever delight you and I have ever experienced is the gift of broken rock. Impermanence is also the true meaning of this word emptiness. We hear the word emptiness in the teachings and we think void. And uh, 
it can bring up fear, but the true meaning of emptiness is, is that we live in this world that's awesome and mysterious and alive and indescribable and vast and vibrant and full of possibility. That's what Anicca also means. However, it doesn't always feel that way when we are uh, dealing with change. So in practice, we get interested in how we relate to change. A number of years ago, I was the Buddhist advisor at Mount Holyoke College, not far from here. And one day I was talking to the young women there about uh, Anicca, and I was saying, okay, so everything changes. Why why does that matter in Buddhism? Why do we care about that? And one of the young women said, because that's basically the way things are, and if you have issues with this, you need to deal with them. (laughs) 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 That kind of sums up the meditation practice. We're, We're looking at our issues that we have with change. And believe me, we have some. I think you probably know that. <laughs> All of these uh, billions of mind moments that uh, Kuang described means that we're constantly being hurled into the unknown. There's so much... Uh, openness in that and the truth of change. Can we hold that much openness? Not always. That's what we investigate in our practice. So the heart-mind develops strategies to deal with this truth of, you could say, the vulnerability that we feel in the face of all of this change. And our, our Deeply conditioned strategies for dealing with change are known as the three roots of suffering. Delusion, aversion, and grasping, which you've heard a little bit about. These three roots of suffering are really about control, controlling, trying to control the the truth of change or this world. We'll look at them briefly before moving on. So the slipperiest of these three roots of suffering is delusion or ignorance. And um, in the sense that I'm talking about it here, there's many different ways we could look at it, but the sense that I'm talking about it here is that if we can't handle the truth of change, we live at a, a slight remove from life. We don't really, we can't connect fully That's one part. Another part is that we uh, don't see life as it is. That delusion is uh, not seeing life as it is. Seeing it as we want it to be or as we perceive it to be on a superficial level. Seeing permanence where impermanence is true. There's a certain sense in in this protective strategy of... uh, Delusion, there's a sense of denial about the truth of life. Like you could say that the biggest manifestation of impermanence is death. Like we don't believe we'll die. That could be a, uh, an aspect of delusion. It's really quite incredible how often we don't think we'll die when... It's the truth of everything. I turned 50 a couple years ago, and I spent my 50th birthday at the crematorium of somebody who was dear to me dying. And it, was a, it was an amazing 50th birthday, and um, I think about it a lot since then. But before that, I'm not sure how much I thought about it. number of years, I took my goddaughter on a trip uh, for her graduation, and afterwards she was showing me the pictures from the trip, and there was this one picture. She was standing next to this woman who had a lot of white hair, and my first thought was, who is that woman? It was me. You know, there was some delusion there, <laughs> you know, like thinking that I looked like I looked 20 years ago rather than 
that's me, I have white hairs. It was, it was so interesting to watch the mind look, you know, like, who is that person? Delusion, denial. <laughs> so this, this protective strategy of delusion, of denying the truth of how things are, or living at a slight remove from life so that we don't really see the truth of how things are. And then out of that, we have the other two control strategies of attachment and aversion, or grasping and aversion. So we try to micromanage life, thinking that we can make it satisfying. And so we hold on, or try to hold on to what's pleasant, and we push away, or try to get rid of what's unpleasant. The human answer to the question of happiness, that maybe if I just try hard enough, I'll get it right. The major advantage of this micromanaging or this clinging, aspects of clinging, attachment and aversion, is that it gives us the illusion of control. It feels like security to us. It's kind of like magical thinking. If I stay attached, I'll have more control over the outcome. We all do this. Like I I can watch it if I'm flying somewhere and... um, and there's a canceled flight. So I'll look at the board, and um, first of all, there'll be denial. It's not true. It's canceled. But after that, then, like, I'll keep looking at the board because I'm, like, I keep thinking if I look at it enough times, it won't be canceled. (laughs) You know, it's like the attachment. There's this this illusion that somehow through the attachment I'm going to be able to control whether my flight was canceled or not. It gives us that illusion of, um, of control. And, and, and us humans, as much as we wish for freedom, we also have this deep wish for security and for control. I was teaching in April in uh, Ohio, and I, I had a, a younger friend with me who was assisting me, um, or uh, like a mentee. And um, I was talking with her at dinner. I think we, I was giving a similar talk to this one. I was talking with her about clinging, and she, she says, I like clinging. It makes me feel better, kind of. That was such a great summary. You know? I like clinging. It makes me feel better. The clincher is the kind of part. You know, she's like, kind of, right? There's a way that it seems to make us feel better, but it has such a high price. That's the kind of part. It's that price of, um, of the bound heart, the bound mind, right? Doesn't lead to peace, we know that. So we all have our favorite control strategy. Of course, we all use all three. But reality always wins. Anicca wins. That's the way this world is. And when we rely on these control strategies, there's, there's one big problem. There's no place to rest. A few um, years ago, I was teaching in Burma, and we had a question and answer period, and one woman raised her hand, and she just asked, Where can we rest? Such a poignant question for all of us. Where can we rest? Well, it's clear we can't rest with grasping aversion or delusion. So the greatest disappointment leading to peace is um, the truth that we can't control this world or this life that we live in a world of constant change, which means we live in a world of uncertainty, unknowing. Sometimes this bums me out. That was the way I was planning on solving the human predicament through control. But it doesn't work. So we make a study in our practice of how we relate to change. 
That's like our whole practice. So we notice how we try to control, fixate, make this world known and secure. And then we notice when we can let go. Let go of clinging. I love to watch my mind when something changes that I'm not happy about. I get very interested and curious to see what it will do and how long it will take to accept the truth of the way things are. You know, like, like losing an earring. It's easy to lose earrings. Most of the women here, who are, those who wear earrings can probably relate. So at first, you know, the earring's lost and it, you can't find it. So at first there's denial usually, like, it's not lost, Right? And then after there's the denial passes, it's like, oh, I really liked that earring, right? Attachment. And there's, there is this kind of hidden belief that somehow that liking that earring and wanting it will make it come back. Right? And then at a certain point, it's gone. And we can feel the, the release of the attachment or the tension leave feels good, feels good to let go. That's just a small example, but we have so many examples because life is changing so much. We have so many chances to, um, to notice how we relate to change. Yeah, just back to the good sitting, right? You had the good sitting the next time you come back. Sitting's not so good. You believe if you hang on enough, you'll have that good sitting that you had before. How long does it take? Be curious. How long does it take into the sitting when you say, oh, this is the way things are right now? And then it it feels good. It feels good to let go. The Buddha taught, this is the good news, the Buddha taught that understanding impermanence frees the heart and the mind. In chapter 20 of the Dhammapada, he says, everything changes, nothing stays the same. Having gained this awareness, one is freed from suffering. This is the way of purification. All conditioned things are subject to change. Having fully learned this insight, one is freed from suffering. This is the way of purification. That's a pretty bold and definitive statement. That through going deeply into the truth of change, this is the way to free the heart and the mind. So we study clinging or letting go in the face of change, seeing what happens in our practice. So there may be times you're sitting in your practice and you just notice some contraction of heart and mind. You turn the awareness towards it and it um, dissipates. Sometimes that happens. That awareness is strong and vanishes. Sometimes that's all that the heart-mind is interested in is, is there clinging? Is there contraction? Or is there non-clinging or freedom from contraction? And then sometimes when the attachment is stronger, it takes a, a long time. It's a process. It can take months, even years for certain attachments, right? A big loss, a loss of a loved one. I read somewhere, I, I don't think it's ascribed to any certain person, it's, uh, but the quote is, everything I've let go of has claw marks all over it. <laughs> Those claw marks are the attachment, right? The clinging. And uh, sometimes it's like that. 
I read a great book called The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, and it was about the year after her husband's death, and they'd been married for, you know, decades. I don't know how many. Um, I love the title, The Year of Magical Thinking, because basically she was talking about this whole process of, of um, attachment and letting go. She didn't use those words exactly. But she would talk about things such as seeing, you know, going into room and expecting her husband to, you know, to be there. And uh, she called it magical thinking, all the ways that the mind tried to deal with the enormity of her loss. You know, the different ways of, you could say, um, delusion and attachment. She didn't use those words, but she was really interested in the process. That was one of the beauties of it. She was curious. She wanted to just see, see what was happening. That's what we do um, in our meditation practice. So when the attachment is deeper, stronger, we let ourselves go through the process, whatever it is, the anger, denial, craving, grief. We let it, we let it move through, and then we find in our own time that um, peace comes, understanding, acceptance, freedom, compassion. We let awareness of the process do the work the awareness and our intention to be free to do the work. Eventually we get that things change. A number of years ago I was in an organization that um, things changed and uh, part of the change meant that I needed to uh, resign my position. I hadn't done anything wrong, that wasn't it, but I needed to resign so that I could let people figure out things without my influence. It just needed to be that way. And um, it was a really hard process for me, um, a number of months. and. Um, I was very attached to, uh, to this group and to my place into it, and I had to let it all go. And um, there were a lot of claw marks. You know, there was grief and, and uh, anger and resentment and a bunch of feelings, but I just let myself be with them. I let myself feel them. I trusted the process of awareness. And I remember the day it shifted And it shifted when I had this thought. The thought was, did I think it wouldn't change? And I was like, oh, this is life. This is how life is. And then that was when I was able to let go and be at peace. Did I think it wasn't going to change? So in our practice, we study how we try to control the world. Where is there tightening? How do we let go? How does letting go happen? Might be little things like breakfast and bagels. Bagels are pleasant, perhaps, and we can enjoy the pleasantness, but when does grasping enter? When do we try to not have that experience end? Or we're sitting in the hall and we're having a fine sitting and then some noise starts, a certain sound starts. How do we respond to that change? Is there aversion or are we able to let go? This is the way things are right now. So even in a yogi life, there are endless opportunities for seeing how we relate to change. All of the challenges that we get, whether it's a little thing like bagels or um, a, a big thing like a major loss in our lives, we see that these challenges are the teachers that we need. Charlotte Joko Beck says, Life happens to be a severe and endlessly kind teacher. 
It's the only authority you need to trust. And this teacher, this authority is everywhere. Life is always offering us opportunities to learn. So we get interested in our issues with change. We notice how the heart and mind with a, with a grasping and aversion feel, with clinging feels. And then we notice how does the heart and mind of non-clinging or letting go feel. We practice clinging with awareness and we practice non-clinging with awareness. Which one feels better? We check it out for ourselves. We see for ourselves. As I mentioned, the other uh, talk I gave, health problems, uh, can be a great teacher of letting go, or body challenges of all kinds, (laughs) aging, health, sickness. Been one of my great teachers, one of those severe and endlessly kind teachers in my own um, practice. A number of years ago, I... I got a flu shot, and uh, about four days afterwards, I started having um, neurological symptoms on one side of my body, uh, numbness and tingling and things like that. So I went to the, to the doctor, and um, I said, do you think this could have anything to do with the flu shot? And she's like, no, no. They were all worried that I had something rather severe. You know, they did the initial assessment. They couldn't find anything. And they were talking um, pretty severe illnesses. And um, so then they sent me to the neurologist, and the neurologist said, oh, it looks like you had an autoimmune reaction to the flu shot. So he said, if that's what it is, it'll clear up in about 18 months to two years. So um, basically, I was sitting there with certain symptoms that I had no idea if it was something that was going to resolve um, in 18 months or two years, <laughs> or if I had the beginnings of a very um, challenging and difficult neurological disease, and I wasn't going to know for months because it, w- it, would, it would be slow to heal if it was the, the um, autoimmune reaction. So meditating during that time was Fascinating. It was really fascinating just to watch what my mind did with this situation, right? So it would try to manage it, right? So the first thing would be like, imagine, imagine the worst. Okay, so it's going to be that. It's going to be you know, um, one of those diseases that they mentioned. And then like, you know, and I would go over my mind like, I, okay, I can deal with that. I'll be able to deal with that. Um, and then I go to the other side. Oh, you know, the neurologist, he knows more than the PCP. So he's probably right. This is going to clear up and I'm going to be okay. And, and the mind would uh, go um, back and forth and back and forth. Lots of fear, resistance to the truth of that moment. And then at a certain point, I started to get good at surrendering to the truth of the moment. And the truth of the moment was, I really didn't know. Uncertainty, right? So I started to investigate what uncertainty feels like. And I found that when I could rest in this uncertainty, really rest there, the world was wide open. There was no problem. Anything could happen. It was vibrant and alive and completely okay. That was a place I could rest. I could rest in the truth of uncertainty. Surrender. So it took the surrender into that truth of uncertainty. Usually we try surrender as a last resort. It's not usually our first one. (laughs) Hopefully we get there. Anyway, after a number of months, it started to improve, and in about 18 months or two years, more or less, it um, resolved. Just so you know the end of the story. (laughs) It taught me so much. I mean, we're always in that place, really, all of us. Uncertainty, as Achan Cha says. 
Ajahn Chah says, just say uncertain. If it's pleasant, say uncertain. If it's unpleasant, say uncertain. Just notice beginning, ending, how everything arises and passes away. So this is the truth of life. And sometimes it just takes a a kind of um, serious diagnosis or something to really uh, bring that to our awareness, right? Our serious loss, perhaps. And we learn how to relax into this truth of life, this vulnerability, you could say, this vulnerability in the face of, of change. So what happens when we stay with this process of change? The other thing that happens, first of all, there's, there's the learning to let go, right? We learn that attachment doesn't work and it's not worth the price. <laughs> that the illusion of control that we get isn't worth the price, you know? That the, the way I was working with that diagnosis and trying to find some place that I could hang on to, it wasn't working, right? So that's what we learn. And we learn the freedom of the heart that doesn't hang on, that lets go. And it's not, I'm not talking about hanging on to the thing, I'm talking about hanging on to the attachment. We, the thing's gone anyway, it's going to go the way, everything's always going, going, going anyway. But what we're letting go of is the, is the holding on. So that's one part. The other thing that happens when we stay with this process of change is that we come to a place of compassion in this world. We start to see and understand that all of life is borrowed, that nothing is guaranteed. And we start to understand that we all share this, all beings share this truth. And a great compassion for all of life can arise out of relaxing into this truth. Life is impregnated with loss. And one way we might choose to deal with that is through detachment or disconnect. This is a path we choose if we can't deal with reality. But the other way that we can deal with that is the path of love. It means that we connect with this world or with experience and we love it even knowing we'll have to let it go. That's our challenge. That's the challenge of the open heart. I like to read the poetry of Pablo Neruda and in his last year of life he wrote a book of poems and um, they're not all finished there were some fragments this is one that came from this last year he knew that he was dying we the mortals touch the metals the wind the ocean shores the stones knowing they will go on inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things. It was my destiny to love and say goodbye. It was my destiny to love and say goodbye. That's our destiny in this world. What I love about that poem is this sense of fully experiencing the world through his senses, that connectedness and that understanding that none of it can be held on to. We must say goodbye over and over again. We develop a mature love for this world that acknowledges this truth. So in our practice, we study change and how we relate to it. There's no correct answer. So it's not about trying to make our practice, um, it's not about trying to make acceptance happen. You can't do that but about being curious and non-judgmental 
in our awareness, our attention, our mindfulness. And inviting in the sense of metta, our kindness. It softens the the hard edges of control, metta does. It offers us a certain protection in its inclusivity and how large our hearts can get. It's a better protection than uh, delusion, grasping, and aversion. We can hold this process of change with softness and with kindness. So in our practice, watching all that arises passes away. Developing the insight that comes from seeing this for ourselves, not from thinking about it. Thinking doesn't do it. It's from being with the process of change itself. I still remember the first moment that I felt like somehow this truth pierced my consciousness, you could say, on on retreat here. And I was reaching for a doorknob. Can happen at any moment. It doesn't have to be on the cushion. I was reaching for a doorknob. And as I touched the doorknob, it was I had this realization that that moment was gone. It was never going to come back. It was never going to be replayed. It would never be the same. I went into Joseph and told him about it. And he said, and did you notice that for the next moment too? <laughs> I was like, no, in the next moment I was thinking about that moment. (laughs) Letting go gives us a flexible heart and mind. Enlightenment could be described as the heart and mind that are totally flexible, stuck nowhere. Letting go feels good. It's like taking off a tight shoe That's what we're doing in practice. We're taking off the tight shoes and our hearts and our minds over and over again. It's a release of struggle, a release of contraction. It's freedom. We meet this truth that all things change, that all that arises passes away. And the heart and mind slowly begin to learn that knowing this truth deeply brings the greatest kind of happiness, the happiness of peace, non-clinging, letting go. Ajahn Chah again. Ajahn Chah said, all that I have learned in the many years that I've been a monk, I can sum up in one sentence. All that arises passes away. This I know. Wow, it's pretty much the same as Suzuki Roshi. Seems that all these masters uh, summed up practice in the same way. Everything changes. All that arises passes away. The importance of understanding change and making peace with change and thereby letting go is reflected in the Buddha's last words, reported last words. His last teaching pointed to understanding anicca as a path to liberation. He said, all conditioned things arise and pass away. Work out your liberation with diligence. So you have your instructions. Let's sit for a minute.
All conditioned things arise and pass away. Work out your liberation with diligence.